Let's pray again. God, that song is taken straight out of your word. Out of Psalm 46, where else would we go? But to you, you are our shelter. And even as we walk through this world, there are times when we are uh, doing really well and there are times when we face the storm and it comes and it feels overwhelming. And yet you tell us that we can find shelter in you. We can find hope in you. And so I pray that we would believe that and we would trust that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. This morning, as Ryan mentioned, we're going to start a mini-series. He said six weeks. I can't do this in six. It's going to be eight, all right? Um, So it's actually an eight-part mini-series within this uh, book of Luke. I'm calling this the King's Sermon. Now, most commonly, you've probably heard this called the Sermon on the Mount, and that is what we normally say. Uh, sometimes you will hear a lesser-known title given to Jesus' words here called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, I'll explain that a little bit later, but you can call it Sermon on the Mount, a Sermon on the Plain, or I'm calling it, uh, for the sake of this series, the King's Sermon. The King's Sermon is majestic. It is majestic in its calling. It is majestic in its ambitions. It is majestic in its simplicity. It is perhaps the most majestic and beloved of Jesus' words in all of the Gospels. There was a world-renowned pastor and theologian named John Stott, and he once said, The Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do. To put it differently, he says, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. There's another commentator, his name is Henry Spence Jones, and he wrote, No portion of the public teaching of the Lord seems to have made so deep an impression as the Sermon on the Mount. James, the so-called brother of Jesus, the first president of the Jerusalem Council, repeatedly quotes it in his epistle. It was evidently the groundwork of his teaching in the first days. He goes on to say, Barnabas, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, the nameless author of the recently found The Teaching of the Apostles, whose writings represent to us most of the Christian literature which we possess from the first century after the death of Paul, Quote this sermon often. It may be taken indeed as the pattern discourse which mirrors better and more fully than any other portion of the Gospels the Lord's teaching concerning the life he would have his followers lead. It's interesting to me that even secular figures acknowledge the importance of this particular portion of scripture. Franklin D. Roosevelt once said, no greater blessing could come to our land today than a revival of the spirit of religion. And I doubt if there is any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. Interesting. 
But you know, the Sermon on the Mount is difficult to follow. And even secular folks recognize that. There was a Supreme Court justice named Oliver Wendell Holmes who once waxed eloquently when he said, most people are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under, but few will use it as a rudder by which to steer. Hmm. We are approaching holy ground when we come to this sermon. And so instead of just rushing into it, I thought it would be wise to take a Sunday and set the stage for what's to come. Because if this sermon recorded by Luke and Matthew contain the high water mark of Christianity, then we would do well to approach it with care. And so this morning is, we're going to read the sermon in its entirety. We won't do this every Sunday, but we're going to, this morning we're going to read Luke's version of this sermon in its entirety. And then I'm just going to give a 30,000 foot overview of what's to come over the next several weeks, okay? So if you have your Bibles open, follow along. I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 6, verse 17, because verse 17 really introduces the location uh, where this sermon is given. And then down through the end of the chapter is the sermon itself. Verse 17. Jesus came down with the disciples and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and here is the beginning of the sermon, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, 
What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But if you lend to those, and excuse me, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be in, put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take this speck, uh, take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. And that's where Luke ends his sermon. It's beautiful, isn't it? Wouldn't it be neat if every single person lived that out perfectly. But that's not our experience in life, is it? A.W. Tozer said this, In the world of men, we find nothing approaching the virtues of which Jesus spoke in the opening words of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Instead of poverty of spirit, we find the rankest kind of pride. Instead of mourners, we find pleasure seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. 
Instead of hunger after righteousness, we hear men saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Instead of mercy, we find cruelty. Instead of purity of heart, corrupt imaginings. Instead of peacemakers, we find men quarrelsome and resentful. Instead of rejoicing in mistreatment, we find them fighting back with every weapon at their command. Take a look around you. You'll see that today. You'll see people revolting or at least not aware or following in any attempt what Jesus commands here on the Sermon on the Mount. The world does not follow this pattern. I was watching with interest this week uh, what was happening on the grounds uh, at the University of Florida uh, where they are appointing a pro-life pro-biblical marriage U.S. senator to the office of president of of the university. And students that are on the other political and ethical persuasion of that uh, appointment were protesting loud. Uh, I was watching some of it going absolutely bonkers over the fact that this guy is coming. If you've watched the world news this week, you saw where Russia was retaliating against the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, I don't know if they've taken credit for it or who, but they blew up this key Russian bridge, a supply bridge. And so as a result, Russia is just lobbing bombs uh, into Ukraine uh, and killing men, women, and children. If you're following any of the post-Hurricane Ian news right here in Florida, you may have seen the press conference uh, with Polk County Sheriff Grady Judd, if you watch him, he's on the news all the time. And here's what he said about looters. He said, people have a right to be safe in their homes. I highly recommend if a looter enters your home, you grab your gun and you shoot him. You shoot him so he looks like grated cheese. Now, I'm not making any type of political statement this morning about gun rights or property rights or personal justice issues. All I'm trying to do is make a point that loving others, living at peace with others, demonstrating a purity of heart toward others does not come naturally. What Jesus says here in this sermon is a totally different way of viewing things. And so we need to understand this. We need to grasp this. The majesty of this passage demands that we understand this. So I want to start off by not only telling you that it's majestic, but I want to describe to you two common mix-ups that people have when they come to the Sermon on the Mount. The first mix-up comes when good-intentioned people pose the question or wrestle with the question, does following the Sermon on the Mount save people or does it describe the saved? In other words, if... I follow the Sermon on the Mount. Is that how I get saved? 
Or is it once I'm saved, this is how I'm to live? Okay, you, you have to wrestle with those. Is the Sermon on the Mount the pinnacle of Scripture by which we say, if you climb to the peak of that mountain, you will be saved? Or is there another pinnacle to which we point for salvation, and then we say, now when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's the description of how you are to live? That's a good question. That's one we have to understand, or we will miss what Luke and Matthew are telling us through Jesus' words. So I want you to keep your finger there in Luke 6, but I want you to turn back briefly to Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, and I preached on this a number of months ago, actually. If you want to go back, you can hear the whole sermon. But if you go to Luke chapter 4, in verses 18 and 19, we find Luke's recollection and recording of Jesus' opening words of his ministry. And here's what Luke records, Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, as he's quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you recall, when we talked about that a while back, Jesus here is speaking in spiritual terms. Of course, he is going to heal people's eyesight. He's going to do those things. But primarily, he's speaking in spiritual terms. He's saying, my mission on earth, the reason I'm here, is to proclaim good news to sinners. What's the good news? The good news is that they can be freed from their bondage and captivity to sin. I'm going to give them spiritual eyes so they can see truth. I'm going to set them free from the bondage to the devil so that they live not under the bondage to Satan, but under grace and forgiveness in the Lord's kingdom. Those are the opening words of Jesus as he described his mission. Now, go all the way to the end of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. So you have Jesus saying, here's why I'm here. I'm here to proclaim good news. And now at the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry in Luke 24, verses 44 to 48, he sums it all up. He, he, he gives in the, he, he caps it all at the end and he tells his disciples, Luke 24, verse 44, then Jesus said to the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, listen, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. Now, when Jesus was summing it all up, what did he say in those verses that should be proclaimed? 
Christ should suffer. That's the cross. And on the third day, rise again. That's the resurrection. And that people should repent for the forgiveness of their sins. He's talking about repentance. He's talking about faith. He's talking about forgiveness. And so while Luke takes 30 verses in chapter 6 to describe and to relate to us the Sermon on the Mount, Luke takes three entire chapters at the end of his book to describe the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord, even as he heads into the book of Acts. What is more important to Luke? Jesus started off with the calling of his ministry. He ended it with the calling for forgiveness of sin, repentance. And Luke says, I'm going to give you the Sermon on the Mount, but don't lose sight of that. You've got to have the cross there. Matthew does the exact same thing. If you go back and you read Matthew's sermon, which is a, a longer version of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 3, he records Jesus' first words as, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus started off with a message of repentance. And while Matthew gives three chapters to the Sermon on the Mount, he gives eight chapters to the final week of our Lord's life. Where was the emphasis? The emphasis was on the cross and on the resurrection. We cannot understand the Sermon on the Mount unless we have that broad understanding of Jesus' mission on earth. If you know David Platt, if you've ever heard of him, in his commentary on this sermon, he says, The gospel writers do not end their books at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount as if their main point were, this is what Jesus taught, this is what Jesus showed us, what it means to be a disciple, this is what it looks like, this is how you ought to behave, this is how you ought to think, now go and do it. No, he says, the cross is absolutely necessary for understanding the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Platt says, the cross is predominant when you come to any of the four Gospels, whether you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you can never read these accounts apart from the very end of the story. The cross is always looming. It's always lurking. He says the last thing we need to come away with from the Sermon on the Mount is with an impossible and crushing laundry list of things that we must do in order to be accepted by God. How are you to be accepted by God? There is only one way that you will ever be accepted by God. And that is, if you believe in a crucified Savior who died on your behalf and rose again, and by faith you trust in Him and Him alone, that is the only way that you will have acceptance with God. But then do we, do we love our enemies? Yeah. Do, do, do we pray for those who persecute us? Yeah. Do we see our own sin as a log and our neighbors as a speck? Yeah. But none of those earn us acceptance before a holy God. It is only because we have acceptance that we live out these things. 
Warren Wiersbe, I love him, wonderful pastor, he says it bluntly, the Sermon on the Mount is not the gospel. And no one goes to heaven by following the Sermon on the Mount. Why? He says this, dead sinners cannot obey a living God. They have to be born again first and receive God's life. So one of the first mix-ups that, that we need to understand is that following the Sermon on the Mount will not save you. Rather, it is the framework for how we live life once we're saved. Okay? Which leads to the second mix-up. <laughs> the second mix-up is the other ditch. And that is when people say, well, you can just totally ignore the Sermon on the Mount. It has nothing to do with salvation. In fact, some people will say, that's not even describing anything on the here and now. That's just only when we get to heaven. Okay? That is also a completely wrong idea about the Sermon on the Mount. The King's Sermon applies today to believers. And it describes the kind of godly character we live out in this world. Yes, in heaven, these things will be lived out in perfection. True, but it does not negate their demands on our lives today. So here's the key for how we live these things out. When Jesus is demanding not, when Je- what Jesus is demanding is not more righteous deeds by human effort. What he's demanding is more righteous hearts by divine grace. That's a big difference. What the Sermon on the Mount is, is what's flowing out of us, from the inside out. It's not what's being pressed on us from the outside. When Jesus said, and Ryan read this morning, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, he didn't mean more righteousness in terms of the amount He meant a totally different kind of righteousness. One that flows from a changed heart. You and I cannot live out the commands of the Sermon on the Mount unless we first have a heart change. We cannot do it. We can can try. That's what the Pharisees did. They they tried, but it it was only an external conformance to the command. They, they didn't commit the act of adultery, but their heart was full of lust. They, 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 they never murdered anyone, but their hearts were full of rage and anger. They might not retaliate against their enemy, but they certainly weren't going to go the next step and actually love them, Right? You and I cannot live out the attitudes that Jesus demands here unless we first have a heart change. That comes by regeneration. That comes by acknowledging the cross and the resurrection and his work in our lives. Once we have that heart change, now what's demanded of us in these verses is for the here and now, not just for some future time in eternity. So if you go back to Luke 6 and you, you, you look through there and you heard me read that, maybe you're sitting there saying, well, geez, how, how am I ever going to do that? 
That is an impossible standard. I could never live like this. Well, let me give you some hope. The opening words of this sermon should not be read as words of condemnation. In other words, don't read those first few verses and hear you are not blessed unless you perfectly fulfill these beatitudes in your life. Don't, don't, don't hear that. Rather, hear the encouragement of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you who believe in me, the poor in spirit, the hungry for righteousness, the mournful, those who believe in me, you are actually blessed. You have the blessing of the kingdom of God on you. God will comfort you. God will satisfy you. God will bring laughter and joy in your soul. And all of these things that I'm commanding you, Jesus says, I'm going to help you do them. I'm never going to command you to do something without also empowering you to do it. So he's empowering us from within. He is our helper. So we have the the majesty, the beauty of this sermon. We have the mix-up, the, the two ditches that people fall in. It doesn't save us. It's describing the saved. And it does apply, yes, to here and now. It's not just something out there. We've we got to stay here in the middle where we belong. Which leads us to the third thing that we need to understand, and that is the milieu of this sermon. Now, Milieu is just a big fancy word that means the context. I needed another M word to alliterate, all right? So I just went with this one. Uh, So it means the context around the sermon. Notice in verse 17, it says that uh, that Luke says that Jesus stood on a level place. Matthew says that Jesus was seated on a mountain, Is this some kind of a contradiction? What's going on here? Well, of course not. Uh, Scripture never contradicts itself. Uh, We're not told exactly in Scripture which mountain this took place on. If you've ever been to the mountains, mountains are beautiful and, and they're enormous and they're gorgeous, but mountains don't just always go straight up with a side of a cliff. If you've been on a mountain, it'll go up and then there's kind of a plateau, a level spot, then it goes up again. So it's very easy to see that both Luke and Matthew could describe the same place when Matthew says it's on a mountain and Luke says it's, it's on a level place. It's on a level place on the mountain, okay? It's, it's one and the same. We're not talking about two different sermons. It's one sermon. It's the same sermon. Luke summarizes it a little bit more than Matthew does. And if But I would challenge you to think about it like this. If you go back and you read even Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, it's three chapters long, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you read straight through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it might take you a total of 15 minutes. It is very likely, in fact, probable that Jesus spoke much longer than that. Up on the mountain, probably delivered at least an hour-long sermon. We don't know. But Matthew and Luke took what he said and they recorded it here. Luke summarizes it a little bit more than what Matthew does. But the Holy Spirit said, this is what you need to know. This is what I want you to record in in, in the Word. So what we have is enough. 
even if there might have been other things that Jesus said. And notice in verses 17, 18, and 19 that there's people that are coming from all over. They're coming from Judea. They're coming from Jerusalem. They're coming from these coastal towns up and down. Uh, They're uh, predominantly Jews, although we can assume that there were some Greeks and maybe uh, some Gentiles in here. And they're coming for two reasons. Verse 18 tells us two reasons why they come. They're coming to hear him, and they're coming to be healed. They want to hear him preach. Jesus amazes them, and he should amaze us when he speaks, because he was so unlike their scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says often in Matthew's version, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And people wanted to hear that. They, they wanted to know. They wanted to understand. Jesus wasn't giving them a new law He was correcting a misinterpretation of the law that had been handed down to them by their spiritual leaders. And Jesus is making this point to them. Your behavior is not merely external. It originates from somewhere. It flows from what's inside of you. And if you want to change the outside, you have to start with the inside. And so they came and they listened to him preach, and it was mesmerizing. They also were very sick. Many people that came to Jesus had diseases. It says they had unclean spirits. They're poor. They're hungry. No doubt, many of them looked at life and said, this is anything but a blessing. I don't have a good life. And Jesus turns all of that on his head by proclaiming to them that they are blessed if they have him. And then he describes what that looks like. And so this context in which Jesus is preaching is perfect for this sermon. And I would argue it's equally perfect for today. Some of you might be here this morning and you struggle with a great deal of anxiety or depression and worry. And there might be some of you in this morning, uh, in here this morning who at one time or another have contemplated taking your own life You've never told anybody. Maybe sometimes to you, life looks bleak, hopeless, and dark. The King's sermon is for you. It's for you. Maybe some of you in here this morning are struggling to get by financially. Inflation is just going crazy, right? We, We see that all the time. Housing in this city is nuts unbelievably expensive right now. And maybe you're sitting here saying, I don't feel blessed. The King's Sermon is for you. The King's Sermon is for you. Because what you will find as we go through this is you have the most important blessing in your life. You have a king who promises to take care of your needs. The King's Sermon is for you. Maybe you are here this morning and every single day, Monday through Friday, you walk into an environment at your school or at your workplace that is hostile to your faith. If you spoke up about what you believe, what you think about life issues or sexual issues or racial issues, you know that you would face a litany, a tirade 
of hatred and cursing. The King's Sermon is for you. Because if that is you, you are blessed. How? Come back next time and I'll tell you, all right? How do you turn good for evil for someone who despises you? It's all here. It's here in the King's Sermon. So you have the majesty. You have the mix-ups when it comes to this. You have the milieu, the, the context. And finally, let me just really quickly, 30 seconds, show you the makeup of this sermon, all right? Uh, look, at, look at the pattern. Just glance down real quickly. Look at the pattern. There's a pattern here. Verses 20 to 26 describe two different kinds of people, those who are blessed and those who face woe. Two different kinds of people. Look down at verses 27 to 45, and you see a description of two different paths, one that produces good fruit and one that produces bad fruit. And then if you look at the final little section, verses 46 to 49, you see a description of two different payoffs. A house that stands and a house that falls. Two different kinds of people, two different paths that they take, and two payoffs. We're going to unpack those in detail over the next several weeks. Lord willing, this will actually take us all the way up to our Christmas season about mid-December. So we have a ways to go. Um, but I am really excited about what all is here. I want to challenge you. I don't know what you use for your personal devotions on a daily basis, but for the next several weeks, would you commit to at least once during the week or twice during the week reading or rereading the King's Sermon? Will you do that? Because when you come back, you'll be much ready for it to take hold of your heart to challenge you, and it will challenge you, and to convict you, but also to encourage, encourage you as you endeavor to live out what Jesus preaches here. All right? Why don't you stand with me? Let me pray for that end, and we're going to sing one last song and head out and start putting this into practice already, all right? God, this sermon here that is recorded by Matthew and by Luke, from the lips of your son, Jesus Christ, is majestic. It is high. It is lofty. We can never just walk up that mountain by ourselves and expect that we conquer it. We need you to help us. And Father, I pray that in the recognition of our need, we would find that your glorious son who died on our behalf, rose again, who will accept us through our repentance and faith, is also the one who's equipping us to live this out. And that so we don't get mixed up, we don't try to do this on our own strength, but that we lean on you to help us, and in whatever context we're living this out, that we would live it out for your glory as people who love you and desire to live up to the high standard by which you call us and to which you call us. We need your help. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray.